This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking to Gary Dolner, ACE. Gary is an award-winning editor with BAFTA nominations for In the Thick of It and Fleabag, an Ace Eddie nomination for Veep, an Emmy win for Fleabag, and an Ace Eddie win for Killing Eve. Today I'm speaking with Gary about editing Fleabag, which is available on Amazon Prime and was one of the big winners at the latest Emmy Awards, with wins for Best Actress, Best Writing, Best Comedy Series, and Best Editing. I've been watching uh, Fleabag recently and love it. It's really uh, fun. It looks like you've got a background in comedy. How did that kind of turn into a career path? Or maybe it hasn't. No, it definitely has. I mean, I've pretty much done a lot of comedy in the last sort of 20 yeah, 20 odd years now. My big break came 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago, when I got the gig for a show called Brass Eye, uh, written and starred, starring the mighty, mighty uh, Chris Morris. And it was a huge break for me. I knew the director who I'd worked with before, and he wanted me to come on board. And um, it was it was a groundbreaking piece of uh, comedy and, and sort of got cult status now. Uh, I just learned so much. I mean, Chris taught me, just taught me so many things during that edit. We did edit for quite a long time. And um, from there, I, I managed to have a run of some really great British comedy shows. What are some of the things that you think that you um, learned from him? You said you learned a lot. Uh, from the director, what what are some of those things about comedy editing that you learned? Well, the thing about Chris was that he he had a background in radio, um, and he used to cut a lot of the interviews up himself doing a radio edit, and then I would we would get that transposed, and then I would put the pictures on top. For example, we were aping in in one sketch 1970s news footage, and um, he said just cut the end of the word off, and I said, what do you mean cut the end of the word off? He said, well, just make it a bad edit. I said, why? And he, he said, well, they used to shoot on film in those days in the early 70s. And when news packages would be put together, they would be in such a hurry that often they would clip, you know, at the end of words. And so in order to give it real sort of truth, I said, it's just going to look like a bad edit. He said, yeah, it will. But it gave it validity. And I think that that element of truth just has to run through good comedy because I think if it... 
if you don't believe in it, then then everything falls down. You know, even though you are trying to generate humor. Yeah, the, uh, I started out as a news uh, photographer, news editor um, back in the '80s, and I remember the first time I sat down with my my senior photographer that was teaching me how to edit. I was sitting there, you know, it was back in the tape days, and I was looking for a shot, and the guy's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm looking for the right shot." And he goes, "Look, do you want to edit or do you want to fuck around?" <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So you know better than anyone else how how uh, the time pressure of sticking those those packages together. And of course, what happened was, you know, it, words got got cut off. And so, in order to, I mean, you, well, you you know the story. People, I think, don't give comedy its due sometimes. And the real, the truth of it is, is that you need the truth to make the comedy work. The funny stuff only works if there's the truth to it. Absolutely, because I think as as long as you suspending, you know, belief, then then you know, the the minute the minute that veil comes down, then then everything else collapses. You know, you it's it's so key to I think to setting up um, good comedy. Mm. With Fleabag, uh, one of the things that I'm really interested to hear you talk about is, of course, one of the main features of the show is that you break the fourth wall and a lot of stuff is delivered to camera. Is there a special rhythm that you have to do to get in and out of those fourth wall pieces? What tended to happen is you cut individual scenes as they're shooting. And, you know, she's so adept and so brilliant at, at doing those looks that in an individual scene, you, you go, oh, I like that one. And then then you do another one. Oh, I like that one too. And then you put it together and you, you put in too many, really. So then, then you have to sort of watch this once you've cut the scene and watch it back and maybe take two or three out. The next level in that dynamic is that once you have an assembly of an episode and you stitched all the scenes together, you then watch it back and then you realise you've put in way too many because they're so good and they make you laugh. But then what might feel okay in a scene, if you then run it 30 minutes long you know, you realize that the emphasis is over it is is too is too heavy on the look so then it's like most things you then go through a process where you you know the the strongest the strongest ones the ones that really hit they're the ones that survive and you start pulling out the ones that perhaps aren't quite as effective often you have to take things out in order for the ones that are left to really land you know most effectively absolutely and when you are doing the the pass after just cutting the scenes together, when you're looking at the entire episode as a whole, are you doing that for maybe the first time or the second time with the director? Or is that something you're, tr- you're realizing those things on your own before the director comes in or before the showrunner comes in? The budget wasn't, wasn't enormous on Fleabag. So the, the, there were, we were under quite uh, tight time, time constraints. But once you do stitch the episode together, you'd always want, I'd always want like, you know, at least half a day or even a day just to go through it all and make sure all the junctions are working. You know, when you stitch two scenes together, when you're cutting that individual scene, you might start on a wide shot, but then you realise where you're coming from is a, is a new edit. And you, you have to start looking at the way scenes crash into the into the next into the next one so you've got to tidy up all those junctions. You just want to make sure that it's in a fit state before you show the director. Sure. And and does it work the same in uh, with BBC or w- with editing in in the uh, UK as it does in the US with a, 
a director who's kind of a hired gun and then a showrunner that's the one that is actually in charge or is it different? Uh, no, it's entirely different. Um, although you know, in more recent years, the influence of the showrunner has definitely, we, we feel that presence and that, that, that hierarchy. But ordinarily on a project, you'll work with a director and, and you know, till picture lock. And then, you know, during viewings, you'll have execs and or a showrunner come in and give you notes. They have fresh eyes on the project and then you beaver away and go through the notes and do another pass and then you have another screening. So that's the traditional way. But in this instance, it, I, mean, I mean, it was fantastic, really, because there was, an I suppose, an alchemy that was happening in the edit room on, on season one where Harry, the director, and Phoebe and myself, I mean, Harry and I would do a, would do a pass and then Phoebe would come in and then we would then often the three of us would then work work it through and uh, and then do the next pass together so that that still that pattern we kept the same so then once I'd finished a of an episode Harry would come in we'd then do a pass together and then then Phoebe would come in and then the three of us would would work through until until we locked it mm. you've done some US comedy shows as well correct like veep does it take some getting used to to switch back and forth between the two systems or is it really you're editing and you're in an editing room and it's the same thing i, I think the principle is the same I and mean, I, I i've got a long working relationship with our with armando in fact i'm working on on his new project uh, at the moment for hbo called um it's a comedy called avenue five so i mean i i've, I've worked with him for a probably about 18 or so years now so i've sort of quite used to the way he works and and i think on veep it was it was reasonably successful in that in that you know it was good that you had a working relationship with the director in the cutting room and you would get a couple of weeks to work more than a few days which would be more traditional in the in the states on a tv show you, you know we we would do a director's pass and we'd have a couple of weeks to do that and then send the cut to armando and then he would then maybe feedback some notes and we'd do another pass on it so We'd be forever refining and you'd be doing that with the director. And then ultimately he would then take control as the showrunner and then we'd work together till picture lock. Got it. Back to Fleabag. It doesn't seem like it to me, but is there a lot of improv or ad-libbing in that show? Um, th there's not a lot, although, I mean, I was thinking about this today, actually. Um, there was a scene in episode six that Martin Gelman was, did a, had a speech he was basically pleading to Claire, his wife, to not to leave him. It was extraordinary. I mean, I watched, you know, ordinarily when I cut a scene, I'll watch all the rushes first. And then I used to make copious notes, handwritten notes. I used to go through reams of A4 um, books, but I, I started changing my ways in more recent years. I, I just I watch a, a take and then if I like anything in there, I'll just chuck it on a selects. Uh, sequence and then go through the whole process through all, all the all of the takes on the scene and th th there was it was a brilliant speech but it, I was really knocked out by the variety in which Brett had, had delivered the same speech it was a master class in in acting because he I'm not a great fan of, of actors who give you metronomic performances every time my background in cutting improvisational comedy shows i'm really in tune with and i appreciate comic actors in particular who, who give you who improvise and who, who, who will give you something different every time and this was sort of like a real barnstorming uh emotional 
plea to his wife and he did it he did it differently every single time and he had peaks in one version where it was troughs in another and he 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 did it quiet in one version and he went i mean i actually said to him after we wrapped that that was one of the most difficult scenes to cut i mean it was really a real challenge because when i look back at the selects reel i could have played that speech in you know so many different ways and it was, it was, I thought it was just an amazing piece of uh, performance, really. And what was it that you felt guided you to the correct tone or temperature of that performance? Uh, I remember it taking longer than it should have done. And I just suppose I just went on gut instinct and I had to rewatch performances over and over again to to find, I suppose, the truth of, the, of of his speech, really, through the process that we all go through when we cut a scene, it, it, it came out, you know. Um, and, and actually, uh, <laughs> you might not like me for saying this, but we were we were right right at the very end of the editing and we were trying to lock episode six. And um, what happened is we, we'd cut some of the lines of the speech and I think Phoebe said, oh, I don't know, something's not right something's not right with with this performance i was getting a little bit frustrated it's one of those moments where you've gone around the houses i just said okay well let's let's watch the uh the assembly version of it and i knew i, I remember it being better than what we'd end up with so i just <laughs> we watched it back and uh, i just turned around and just with a great big smile didn't have to say anything because i knew it was so much better first time round than than what we'd ended up doing to it and uh, I've got a bit of stick for being a bit cocky in the, in, in the cutting room. But it was all good banter. So in a way, that speech that we then reinstated the full version. And I think we made a few little tweaks. And that's what, what ended up in the cut. Yeah, I've done that a couple of times myself. I'm like, see, we did all that work. But sometimes you need to do that work, right, in order to get back to the to the place to know that you haven't missed anything. You, you're right, Steve. I think I slightly changed a bit, but I, I remember being quite protective over over my edit, you know, and actually I'm glad I got over myself because um, I think the joy of the joy of the process is, you know, you, you there are so many different ways you can play scenes, especially in this given one where, where Brett is, is, is giving you so much variety and he's giving you so many choices, all of which are equally brilliant. And so that's making the, the, the you know the, the decisions more and more tricky because you don't know which way to go. But that's great a great challenge that he's he set us. But you know you, that's what you have to do. And if you've got the time to do it, you know you've got to. Sometimes you have to go down editing cul-de-sacs in order to realise you know the right way. Yeah, absolutely. There's some great uncomfortable pauses, like long holds that. Uh, I just love that. That's a typical thing in comedy, right? That a long, uncomfortable pause. I was thinking about the first episode of season one or something, maybe where she, her uh, her coffee shop is kind of empty, and there's this guy sits down and starts plugging in all of his electronics, and it's just a long, long, long shot of this guy plugging in various <laughs> devices under the wall. I remember that because we tinkered we tinkered around with that for for a while, but. You know that sometimes you have to do it. You know, you, I think the problem with those kind of jokes is that they're often called incessant jokes. You have to play it out for a certain amount of time in order to get get the comedy moment that you're looking for. But but by doing so, it can be quite boring. Uh, so it, it's always quite a fine, but they're quite tricky to to get right. I think, and when you do get them right, that they are they are brilliant. I mean, the best the best one 
I've ever worked on was uh, on a series called um, Alan Partridge, and uh, it's quite a, it, quite a famous clip now because it, he had to get the attention of a guy called Dan, and he's shouting out to Dan. He's going Dan, 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 and and it's one of those moments where it, it was all in the frame, and I didn't have to make any edit. I didn't edit the sequence because it it was all in the performance. So that's a classic example of when not to edit. You know, let the thing play out. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the time jumps that happen. Um, for those that haven't seen the movie or this, the series, her girlfriend dies before the series actually begins, right? But you're still seeing her even though she's dead. Yeah. So, so flashbacks were sort of from the script were stitched into the like DNA of the show. I mean, that's the thing that I, I probably most proud of of that season one, because we had a rolling delivery, which meant, obviously, once we started introducing the flashbacks of Boo, you know, we were getting to the stage of locking, say, episode three, and I turned around and, and in a sort of slight panic, said to Harry and Phoebe, I don't know how many flashbacks to put in, because until we get to the end of six, we're not going to know. Do we give away too much in four and five, and then we've got nothing left in six? Do we don't want the audience to guess before it happens because that will kill the whole series at the same time we had such a tight turnaround that we had we had to lock as we were going so a lot of that was just sort of guesswork really uh i'm interested that you said that you changed your approach and i'm assuming it's a it's an overall thing from taking notes and and doing all this stuff before to changing to kind of a way of doing selects was that a scary thing to change your methodology or freeing or you figured you'd just try it once and then it stuck? Yeah, I think I just I think I just tried it a couple of years ago and then found it quite liberating in a way because often what I would do is is I would stop at a take at midpoint because there were so many notes I and I had a see a whole list of ticks and double ticks and triple ticks and write you know keywords that would trigger a memory that you know and then I would go through all of my notes and I would stop the scene together according to the notes and and the, but actually I think I'd realized that I'd already be editing in my in my head when I watch rushes and I think I've done that for a while and you know for example you know when you watch the wide shot ordinarily are the first setup that a director would would use and they may do three takes on the wide. And you know that there's only certain lines, or I, I tend to feel like there's only certain lines that we're ever going to use on that wide shot. So you would quite quickly get to know what is worth taking from that wide shot or not in the select reel. So then, you know, you then move through the different setups and you edit in your head as, you, as you're watching and go, oh, that's a great bit of performance, but I'm not sure I like that frame. But I'm going to put it in the, in the select reel anyway. And then you come into the frame that you really want in your mind that line to be played on and then you chuck that in the in the time in the timeline roughly in the same area so you're not sort of quite doing a line string but it's sort of like a half line string half half selects reel so i try and drop the new takes roughly in order of, of the dialogue and then i found that once i got to that stage you know for a four minute scene you might have 12 or 15 minutes worth of stuff to look through, but you've, you've already honed it down. And in my mind, because it's all quite fresh, I really know roughly the rhythm of how I want to cut it. And then I found the whole, that you cut the scene quite quickly then. Yeah, and for me, I, I'm a selects real user myself. And when I think of some of the scenes that I've gotten that, 
they could run, you know, if not just 40 minutes, they could run hours. You're like, I can't wrap my head around, I can't wrap my head around that. I need 15 minutes where I'm like, okay, I can, I can think about 15 minutes. Exactly. And also you're whittling down all the time, aren't you? So you're watching and whittling by, by doing a select. So you're already in effect, you're actually editing already, albeit you're not constructing the scene in the sense of how it's going to end up, but you, you actually are, you're editing material out and you're keeping the bits that you like. Do you ever use those selects reels with your director if they're not dialed in with you on a performance that you use and you go, oh, let me go back to the select and I'll see what else we have? I'll do that, absolutely. And then another, I mean, another trick I suppose I've been using for a few years and I didn't realize I was doing it, which is in effect a line string. I would just, I tried uh, making my last assistant do line strings because I didn't really wasn't really aware that assistants even offered up that sort of thing or they were or other editors made assistants do that i just thought it's going to take you ages an assistant i used dan he he said oh yeah other editors make me do line strings and i went right what are they then and he told me and i said well go on then do a line string and he said i wish i hadn't told you now he started on fleabag actually yeah i mean it's it's nice to have it's it's but you know i, I felt a bit bad asking him to do it really he shouldn't have offered it up i suppose <laughs> I think I found another little trick when you're fine cutting a scene with say Harry and Phoebe, we were fine cutting a scene and, and we were someone, one of us had mentioned a delivery of a, say one line from someone. And it wasn't quite that it might be like a small thing at that stage, but someone had said, Oh, it's not quite right. That line, can we have a look at the orcs? And then you would literally go back and, you know, take your, couple of minutes just to find all the different versions of that line and you just chuck them in the timeline that you're working on and go right okay let's just watch all that back i remember the first time i did that with phoebe she really liked it you got you know six options of that delivery of line and we'd often you know which one do you like i like two and four no i like three and five and then we just have a little a little sort of uh, discussion and then we 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 decide them on lots of people that are especially maybe not editors really like that to be able to to look at a line out. It gives you a bit of respite from the moment that it might be getting a bit tense in the cutting room and then, you know, because something wasn't quite working and then you can just, and it just, this might be over just one line or one word, you know. Uh, do you do a lot of replacement of audio, the audio line into a different video performance? Yeah, I've done that for, for, for years really. Um, you know, going back, working with Chris, uh, all the way through really that's you know often if there's a if there's a take where you know i really like the the, the pictures that we're looking at and there's lots going on saying on someone's face in a particular take but there's a word or a couple of words aren't quite right or maybe they're fluffed i'm always replacing bits of words from another take and chuck popping that in uh yeah that's just a, a sort of a nice little thing to to keep an eye on really and it's nice to get to a stage in the cut where you can think along those lines. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned that I am really always interested in talking about is transitions between scenes. And there were, I remember at least in the season one, I saw, you know, two prelapse that I can think of. Is there a reason why you use a prelap um, of audio? You know, like uh, the one I can remember was the two sisters are in the graveyard for the first time, kind of going to visit their mom and coming out of that, there's a prelap of a phone call to her boyfriend while she's looking at a dog. <laughs> what is the use of a prelap for you? 
or is it just to do something different? Yeah, I think it depends on on the project you're working on. I mean, you know, often it's it's a quite a neat device to use if you're if you're connecting a thought, you know, on someone's face and you, you hear you hear something that is connected to what they're thinking about what, or the dialogue that they just come from. I mean, or, or you know, that you can use it for comic effect as well, um, you know, to really punch home uh, a certain gag. I mean, one of the things that, that we use quite a few times, and this is something I'd learned from Chris years ago, was it goes back to that clipping of clipping of audio is uh, a hard, you know, some quite vicious hard audio cuts. So we use one, and I think this was scripted in in episode one of season two, where Godfather is is just is halfway through the word lebian, and we cut on the B sound of of the word, and we cut outside to to Fleabag having a cigarette. Firstly, it's it's getting a laugh because it's an unexpected cut because you're at that point in the narrative. Hopefully, the audience are completely immersed in in the dialogue. Uh, and you're not expecting it, but also the fact that she goes out to have a cigarette is because she's so desperately, uh, she's so desperate to get away from these people she's sitting in this claustrophobic room with. So, um, you know, it's doing two things at the same time and hopefully getting a laugh. Yeah, I, I had that down as a thing to talk about was an interesting use of some very hard cuts with dialogue and music. So that was one that you pointed out with dialogue. You did that a couple of times with music too, where there'd be a fairly loud music cue and it would just, on the cut, on the visual cut, it would just clip. Yeah, yeah. And in comedies, you're doing it to, to punch in on a, on a joke, really. Because so much of editing is the craft of being completely seamless and hiding you know, we're all we're all taught to. You've got to hide the edit. You've got to make it seem seamless. You got to. It's got to be smooth. You mustn't have any bumps. And actually, it's quite nice to be counterintuitive and do the exact opposite, and 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 wrench the audience out of the narrative. Especially in comedy, it's key trick to use to to you know to hopefully make something funny or funnier than it than than it is. Yeah, I can think of uh, visually. There's a great sequence in season one where she's her boyfriend's asking her to take pictures of herself and it's jump cuts because she'd get a text and then instead of you know hanging up the phone or setting it down and going to the next thing it would just be a cut to another moment in time and that kept happening yeah i find it very liberating as an editor to to not be a slave to continuity because Often it can be, you know, it can serve as being quite a dramatic way of, of going from one moment to another. Um, it can allude to, you know, quite an obvious time jump if that's that's what you you want to, to the audience to feel. And the other thing is, you know, if you are trying to cut down the duration of a sequence and you, you you've already got that in your your cutting style, I mean, it, it helps on on a very practical, logical uh, front as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying to understand a little bit about the the relationship. You talk about Phoebe being in the uh, edit. Tell me a little bit about that relationship and how, you know, I would think it would be very hard for an actress or actor to be in the edit and not be too precious about their performances. Well, um, firstly, I feel completely lucky to be sitting in a room with Phoebe for a three months because I mean she's such fun to be with I learned very very quickly that you know in addition to being a brilliant writer and a, and a, 
a fantastic performer. One of the things I really appreciated is her, she's not precious in any way at all. In fact, sometimes Harry and I would, would have to uh, bring her back from being too hard on, her, on herself uh, and she would want to get rid of stuff because she didn't like it. And so a few times we'd have to gang up on her and say, no, you're wrong. Uh, it, it needs to stay in because it's great. But, you know, the, the, the thing that I think I really, really appreciated is she's got like a, a laser-like sense of editorial judgment. In, in season two, for example, there were a couple of rewrites and a couple of reshoots. And, you know, that was all being driven by her her sort of sense of something not quite right. We need to do this again. Oh, that's, that's wonderful to it's wonderful to hear. I'm sure that. Tell me a little bit about just the process that you go through. Um, you know, you said you've got, you know, your first cut and then you put everything together and you, you know, you want a little bit of time to yourself. But then when you start getting more collaborative discussions going on, how, how much are you, as an editor who's a more experienced now, how much have you gone, hey, this is, I'm loving this collaboration and it's not about you know, my first edit being bad, it's just about accepting this other collaborative input. I think when you find, you know, people that you you can sit in, I mean, we all know that cutting rooms often are quite confined spaces. And so you have to have a certain skill set to get on with, you know, sit in a room with someone for quite a long time. But when you find, when you find you know, a family of people that you you click with, I think that's it's quite rare and you know i think that's probably why a lot of editors directors you know will work again together because they know that, that you know you develop a shorthand in terms of your way of working but i i always find that the most creative part of the process because sometimes editing can be quite a solitary pursuit and um you know it's nice to be able to talk to people and and and, and i think that's where you know often it might be the more subtle changes take place but i think often i find they're the the ones that have the greatest impact on, on the cut because you're 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 getting down really close and you're doing all that nuanced work that is is really going to make the difference in, in the cut yeah i love that idea that social idea that you know one of the th- reasons why these people that work with you like you so much is not so much just for your skill level but for how you are to get along with when you're in this confined little room. That's definitely a part of the role of the editor. You have a lot of strings to your bow. I mean, the thing that is least it's important is that is the technical bit of pressing the buttons because that's anyone can do that. It's your it's the emotion that you put in or you read into a situation and that you know your interpretation of performance. And, you know, like you say, being able to get on with someone. I was thinking of the, the first episode of Fleabag we <laughs> Phoebe had this idea where um, she wanted to take out, you mentioned the looks to camera. She said, right, take out all of the looks to camera for the first 20 minutes. And I can't remember at what point, there was a point, and it may well be the punch. And we spent like two days taking out all of the looks and trying to repair all the holes that we were left with. And that took a couple of days to do that. I remember looking at her thinking, you know, you're mad. This is this is just not going to work. And But, you know, we, we the three of us sat in there and did it all. And then the, I remember we showed it to the producer, uh, Lydia and she, she and Sarah, and they said, well, what have you done? You, you, what, what's, I don't understand. You, we miss Fleabag from the audience. We like being complicit with her. 
But it was just one of those, that was a classic editing cul-de-sac that we had to go through and try out in order to, you know, find the, you know, the rhythm and, and the tone of, of that opening episode because there was so much resting on, on that opening episode. Right. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about Killing Eve. Did you, is that uh, producers you'd worked with before or how did, uh, how did you make that connection to work on that kind of very different show? It's interesting you say that because for quite a few years I've, I've been trying to do bigger form projects uh, and moving into drama, more dramatic projects. And But I, I keep getting the same, I mean, every time I go for interviews, they go, oh, yeah, you can do comedy, Gary, but you can't really do drama, can you? And and I'd try to convince them. And, you know, what happens is you've been working on top comedy shows for 20 years and you get pigeonholed. But fortunately, um, Phoebe was the writer uh, on, on Killing Eve and she wanted, uh, you know, she was keen that Harry uh, direct the opening block and they both wanted me to cut it. So um, I had to go and convince the execs that uh, I could do it. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't that straightforward. But um, I'm really proud of that work because that was a big a big break for me because it, it maybe they still do I don't know but the people were seeing me purely as a comedy editor and and you know actually I think comedy's probably more difficult to cut than than straight drama um, because you you have to hit all the same beats that you hit in a drama but you've got to make it funny as well so you've got in a way you, you, there's other things at play that you haven't got in a drama but uh, you know one of the things that I really loved about the script for Killing Eve was that although there was lots of, you know, dramatic story beats going on in the script, you know, the thing that really appealed to me was that there was this great thread of humour running all the way through it. That was a treat to do. Did you edit that in in London or were you in L.A.? No, I cut that in London. They were, you know, shooting all around the world the shoots in Italy and Paris and all sorts of places and uh, so I was just based in um, based in uh, London cutting that nice I've talked to a bunch of people that cut in London and so many of them seem to be in these really nice uh, Molinaire or uh, yeah that's where I cut Kenny Eve and uh, where did you cut Fleabag a place called The Look which is a smaller uh, um, grading house but they've got some cutting rooms there as well um, so we, they graded the first uh, season, and so the second and, and the second season. So uh, we we cut there, um, and that was nice. It was a uh, you know it's a nice intimate feel about the cutting rooms there. So and and again, it's very central, so it's easy to get to. Yeah, I, I think I talked to the editors for The Crown that cut at Molinaire. So many of the people that say that they cut at these places with multiple shows going on appreciate the fact that there are other editors around from other shows and <laughs> you can kind of uh, get out of your cubbyhole every once in a while and talk to somebody. Yeah, it's nice if you do bump into people, but, you know, often, as you as you probably know, you know, again, it's quite a solitary job, isn't it? So, you know, you, you just sometimes feel like you change the room for, for hours on end. Um, so yeah, it's nice if you do bump into people. To get back to something you mentioned earlier, I think it's very interesting that you said that the director and the writer both wanted you to edit um, Killing Eve, but then you still had to convince somebody beyond that. That seems crazy to me. Yeah, I would. Uh, it was crazy to me as well. But, you know, <laughs> I think that's that's the, you know, everybody gets pigeonholed. And um, I hadn't worked with that company before, and perhaps they were – they needed convincing but um hey i got i won the uh the the eddie for for that episode so um 
you know, I couldn't. I, I think I did all right on it. Congratulations, that's fantastic. You, is there anything specific that you can remember, uh, like things you can think of editing, especially since it's been your um, your main thing for the last twenty years, cutting comedy? What are some of the other uh, little tricks to the tricks of the trade? I was going to mention one thing. I mean, the, the, in, not so much the tricks of the trade, but you, you were talking before about. Um, you know, rewriting in the cutting room. And, and, and uh, you know, that's certainly something that I think Fee really appreciates. And I've heard her say, you know, she's been very kind to call me a, another writer of the show. She appreciates that whole process. I mean, I think it's true. I think I think that's what happens on a lot of films and, and shows is that you are, you know, you have the script, you, you have editing notes and, and you, put, you, you, you put it all together. But, you know, it takes on a life of its own because as soon as... You, you've got actors delivering the lines, then, you know, the script is there, but it takes on another life because the actors are breathing life into those words and the dynamic changes again. I think that this, uh, the schooling of, of cutting a lot of comedy and, and especially the sort of improvisational comedy I've worked on, you know, has meant that I've always been forced to and never been afraid of moving scenes around or, you know, rearranging a, a sequence. I mentioned about pulling out in episode one of Feedback, pulling out all of the certain look, well, this is something we should try and let's just do it because that's what you do. You can always put it back again. I mean, that's the joy of working on an Avid is that you can, or an non-linear system is you can, you know, these things, as long as you've got the time to do it, you can try all these things. And I think that's the, you know, that's the fun of, of, of the process that you're involved in. So yeah, you do. I think you do rewrite. Do you do any other rewriting or offering of suggestions beyond kind of simply, and that's not simply, but rearranging things or removing things? Do you think, oh, what if we ADR'd this or? Yes, sometimes if, if, if there's, you know, if some lines are cut, then obviously sometimes you can naturally join one section of the scene to another and you know, you've lost an exchange and it's seamless. And other times, it, you know, if there's a beat that's missing as a consequence of either a line going, for example, then, you know, you might want to put in an ADR, hopefully maybe get a joke in as well, as well as making a sort of, you know, a plot point or a logic point or whatever it may be. So, yeah, it's always good to um, chuck in suggestions. Not always taken up, obviously, but it's always good to, uh, I mean, that's part of the fun, isn't it, of, of trying to, you know, because at that point you're so immersed in 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 the story that you, you you feel like you're in the heads of those characters. And I'm sure that that's one of the things that the director and um, uh, the writers feel from you is as long as you are in the room with other people that just care about the story, then you're you're open to say almost anything because as long as everybody's working. For, for the good of the story, then the best ideas will come out. I think so. And I think also there's a responsibility on the editor to to tell the director or the writer or the showrunner or whoever it may be you work with in the room, you, there's a responsibility to, to say if you don't like something or you think that's wrong or that their idea is is not working as well as this idea or that idea or you know you made a change but you think that that change is not as good as it was beforehand or, or whatever the situation may be and you know often you can you can have awkward moments you know and you can you know you can hear a pin drop because you challenged the director 
over a certain point. But if you feel strongly about it, I think you you should voice it. And they have to appreciate that it's, it's you're not being difficult. You just believe in what you what you're advocating, and it's because you care about something, and you care so strongly that you you argue the point to make it. So I think that's um, you know hopefully if you do it in the right way, all it is is an indicator of that you care about about the show or the film. It shows your passion. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you get to a stage where, you know, if you haven't got the passion for that project, you probably shouldn't be on it and you're not the right person to be doing it because I think, you know, it takes up so much of your energy and time that you've got to, you've got to feel passion for it. Otherwise, you know, you, you can't do your job properly, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. And is that one of the things... Uh, that's useful to you when you're working with the same people over and over again because it's a little easier then, of course, to make those kind of difficult suggestions when when you know those people a little better than with a new director, a new producer. Yeah, of course. But, you know, I'm sure we've all been in situations where, you know, perhaps you've been in the room with a maybe a less experienced director and, uh, you know, you try to say some things or they're suggesting to do it one way and you think, you just know it's not the right way of doing it. It comes back to you know, how you, negotiating skills then, isn't it? And that can that can be dictated by what kind of mood you're in that day. Very, very true. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us, uh, joining me and, and talking to me a little bit about, uh, about your career. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Gary Dolner, ACE, and thanks to Michael Zack for editing the interview. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend. (laughs) 